Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. I am your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged and delighted to welcome a very, very accomplished and a very senior professional from the Netherlands, Mr. Mickey Haubrechtsen. I hope I had the pronunciation right. And if I didn't, apologies, Mickey. Mickey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Mickey is uh, the chairman of the public cause. He's a former member of the global managing board of McKinsey and Company. He's a former chairman of the Dutch Olympic Committee and the Netherlands Sport Federation. Uh, he's an author of several books. And today we'll talk about one of his books that he kindly sent to me, which was Management Made Simple. So Mickey, let's start with your journey. Tell me about your journey, you know, making it to the top in so many iconic organizations. What did you do right and what were your challenges? Well, what I did right in the first place is, is not of my own doing. That is mm -hmm. getting the right mentors and the right teachers. Mm -hmm. So I've been exceptionally fortunate from primary grade through university. I've been in situations where we were probably two pupils to one mm -hmm. teacher. Right. And that was enormous. Uh, enormous benefit. Right. And from there on, I, uh, I, I'm from a, a professional background. My parents were a medicine, medical doctors, mm -hmm. but I had a, developed an interest in business. And so uh, I went to the Navy first uh, in the conscription period. There I designed a submarine. Wow. And, and then, yeah, I only designed the whole structure, not the entire submarine. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there on, I, I managed to get a position with a, a diversified mechanical engineering company called Stork, uh, where I arranged to have five staging periods mm -hmm. to, to gain some experience. And right through the third experience, which is every time three months, I, uh, I got to the gas turbine department and the two superiors to me left mm -hmm. within three months. So at age 26, I fell upwards. Okay. And I became general manager of International Industrial Gas Turbine Division. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot of lessons uh, because we built, for instance, the largest oil booster station in the world mm -hmm. in the middle of the desert of Iran. And it caught fire one day before the expiration of the warranty period. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up spending months in court in London to settle that and fortunately ended up with getting extra orders. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it was quite a, an enormous experience. Then I moved to McKinsey and Company and the primary reason was that I was a general manager by that time. I had not had one single lesson in management. Uh, I had a direct superior who was a very impressive, highly talented man, also an engineer, but I didn't consider him to be a real strong manager. So I was getting concerned that I would fall into the same trap, falling mm -hmm. upwards. And therefore I applied to McKinsey and Company. I, in my desk, I had uh, uh, put a, an ad which was six months old where they basically asked for people walking on water. And that mm -hmm. appealed to me. Mm -hmm. So it's always been the challenge that has been appealing to me. And that, uh, that got me into McKinsey. Uh, and I learned a lot there, but in particular, the professional environment and the opportunity to work 
uh, on almost any problem in almost any industry mm. was, was so exciting, as well as the professional ambiance, the partnership nature of the firm at the time. It was a relatively small firm compared to today that uh, uh, when I was offered CEO position in large corporations, I ultimately declined because mm. I really loved the situation there. And as a result, I've been working with 48 of the 50 largest corporations in the Netherlands, several outside, half of the, the minister, ministerial departments, the academic hospitals and anything. Amazing. And, and Amazing. Thus, thus so, I know nothing about anything and anything about nothing. Fantastic. But, you know, uh, given your vast experience, and as you said, worked with uh, 50 of the top organizations in the Netherlands, if you were to build a fresh team of people, given today's pandemic, what would you look for in people? Well, there's a lot of things I would look for. Probably to start with is wisdom. Okay. And since India is known to be the country of wisdom, mm -hmm. I, I might look there. Okay. Uh, also, what I consider very important is overview. Mm -hmm. I found the world to be fragmented into experts, none of whom really have a helicopter view of everything. Okay. Uh, you need that. A third item, which is very high on my list, is courage. Right. And, and unfortunately, uh, certainly in government, but also in, in business, mm -hmm. I increasingly observe the elimina elimination of real talent that mm -hmm. has courage because the system doesn't allow for real independence of mind. Mm. And that's a, a thought that is very disconcerting and in the public cause I'm pursuing that topic. The fourth one is empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, I have tried to raise my children and grandchildren in a, a notion of understanding how privileged they are and what their responsibility is mm. to the rest of the world. Uh, the other day, in, in the context of the public cause, I had a discussion with uh, uh, 50 young kids in vocational training, and I told them, your value is determined for, by what you mean for, to somebody else. Mm. If you do not mean anything to somebody else, you're without value. And they, they understand that notion. So that's something, uh, and then you get all kinds of other things like communication, communication skills, creativity, etc. Very interesting. So, you know, you spoke of values, but let me yeah. take you to another part of uh, one of the meaning of value. And that is the valuation of companies and value creation. Yeah. I'd love to get your perspective on who knows um, how to value a company, the stock markets or the, the, the venture capitalists? Okay, I, I think the venture capitalists win by a margin. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stock market in my, inter I should step one back. I've been preaching the emotional revolution mm -hmm. over the last 25 years. And by that, I mean, we've had the industrial revolution. We've then had the information revolution, and right now we're in the middle of the emotional revolution. That means that most decisions have an enormous emotional content. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, most governments rule the world by concepts of organization of the industrial revolution rather mm -hmm. than the emotional revolution. Back to emotions, 
The stock market, in my view, is the derivative of the derivative of human opinion. Correct. And by that, it can go anywhere. Mm. It is totally uh, disconnected, not totally, but almost totally mm -hmm. disconnected from reality. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, objectively, the value of a corporation is the net present value of future cash streams. Mm -hmm. and, uh, some of McKinsey colleagues have written complete books about that. Right. And logically, that should, uh, that should be the case. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, with the future getting increasingly complex, it's very hard to make those estimates. Mm -hmm. But on balance, I presume the venture capitalists know better and, and, uh, than the stock market, which is just a composition of human emotion, which is uncontrollable. Mm. But, you know, uh, again, drawing upon your vast experience, I'd love to get your perspective on the traditional businesses that have existed all over the world and have built huge assets and yeah. along come a lot of these digital companies. And yeah. I don't mean to, uh, you know, undermine anything that they're doing. But what is it that they are doing that is making their valuations go into the trillions of dollars? The, uh, let's first start with the uh, high asset companies. Mm -hmm. I, I, I describe them in my book that basically fixed assets are a drag on your business. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, fixed assets used to determine your value. Correct. Now, they make you unable to adapt to mm -hmm. changing environments. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, fixed assets are inevitable in, in some industries, but it makes them far less attractive because the, the, the floating assets or the variable assets like technology, like knowledge, like access to market mm -hmm. uh, have a very low marginal cost. And therefore, if you can increase scale, mm -hmm. the value of these corporations is, is really up into the stars. Mm -hmm. That nevertheless, I must say, I see some multiples uh, that I, even with the most enthusiastic projections of the future, mm -hmm. I cannot justify. Mm -hmm. But the basic notion today is being flexible, uh, being ready for a highly uncertain future, which mm -hmm. where you cannot eliminate uncertainty by study mm -hmm. to some degree, but not by all. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have to be flexible. And therefore, you have to reduce your fixed assets to an absolute minimum. Mm. Fascinating. And, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, a couple of uh, young entrepreneurs in India who have become unicorns in four or five yeah. years time, and they're not making any money. So I asked them, I said that in my own mind, business has to make money. And I got a very interesting response from them, which says that you need talent to lose money and increase valuation. Yeah, I'd love to get your perspective. There are two observations. I mean, ultimately, it has to make money in terms of uh, respecting the value that the stock market offers. But it can be in the future, and in particular, because the interest rate is so low, and therefore the discount rate is very low, mm -hmm. you can, your future is relatively long. Mm -hmm. That allows for high valuation. But on the other hand, you have to do the talent. Uh, I always asked, I always told within McKinsey that talent 
was more scarce than clients. Correct. So I, I showed a double business system. The mm -hmm. first business system was directed at clients. Right. The second business was directing the other to people, staff. Right. And uh, I tend to exaggerate, as you may have found out, mm -hmm. but in many instances, it is harder to get the right people than mm -hmm. to get the right clients. Mm -hmm. And and that I think is increasingly true for most corporations. So mm -hmm. the war for talent, as it was already introduced thirty years ago, mm -hmm. uh, is is still going on and getting increasingly important. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And uh, if you look at the traditional companies, and you've been associated with the top fifty of them in the Netherlands, yeah, what do these companies need to do? to be able to adjust to a new economy, which is digital, which is at very fast pace, yeah. uh, millennials, Gen Zs, how do companies adapt? That's, uh, yeah, that's a, a, a non sequitur almost. Uh, in the okay. sense that it is virtually impossible to adapt mm -hmm. okay. to large corporations. Right. So I think like the Roman empire mm -hmm. and like some developing countries and developed countries, mm -hmm. There's an end to everything. So there's a natural cycle and large corporations will ultimately die mm. unless they recreate themselves. Mm. That turns out to be very hard. There are mm. several components that you can think of. Mm -hmm. It's a very tough challenge. Right. The one component is putting things at arm's length. Right. If you look at the corporate Philips, worldwide corporation, and originally in, in lighting and beyond that electronic. Mm. Mm. They divested their, their chip manufacturing technology. Mm -hmm. And now that divestment is worse. The value is 10 times higher than Philips itself. Correct. And everybody agrees it would not have survived within the Philips structure. Mm -hmm. So putting things at arm's length is one option. The second option is replace all top management. Mm -hmm. A rather uh, tough measure to take. Absolutely. But that is what the third option for corporations to slowly move into having fingers in many pies outside mm -hmm. the corporation while breaking down its its own business mm -hmm. gradually mm -hmm. and and but be effective in managing at arm's length all kinds of new initiatives. For instance, mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry is mm -hmm. very evident that whereas originally it was all in-house development, now mm -hmm. it has to rely on access to many startups mm -hmm. in order to survive. And, and the final option is breaking up the corporation in various parts. As for instance, I've always been arguing that uh, the, the big oil corporations will have to break down into an upstream and a downstream part because there's no logic to mm. the combination of upstream and downstream. Mm. Very interesting. And therefore, logically, continuing with your own argument, the big tech companies will face a similar challenge in a few years. Uh, uh, not those that have an effective monopoly. That is one of the problems mm. that in particular in the, in the domain of variable assets, uh, effective monopolies have arisen. And one of the arguments in the public cause is that although I do not, I'm not a strong uh, uh, arguer for government intervention, mm -hmm. I, I believe government should intervene in these 
global monopolies that the internet has created. Okay. And 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 put and and challenge them on on many dimensions. Mm. And they haven't really started doing that. They're very late in that domain of the entire internet, and people have not interpreted it at the right time. Mm. But that now is an important call for governments to take charge of worldwide communication on the internet. Amazing. So, Miki, now moving on from the corporate world to the world of sports. Yes. You were you were the chairman of the Dutch Olympic Committee and yeah. the Netherlands Sports Federation. And we all know Netherlands uh, has produced some amazing champions in multiple sports. Yes. I want to ask you, what support does the government or the association give to, uh, you know, budding sports stars? Okay. The local government is quite supportive of local sports clubs, but that's Mm -hmm. predominantly amateur. Mm -hmm. The central government spends relatively little on top athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Olympic Committee has to find other ways to do that. Mm -hmm. The great advantage, structural advantage as a country we have is that we're very small, Mm -hmm. highly populated, Mm Uh, we have a very intense network of sport clubs. Mm. I think we probably have more sport clubs than uh, per capita than almost anybody in the world. Yes. And as a result of that, we have a very, a very organized development of talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my years, I've started to bring coaches together from different disciplines mm-hmm. uh, who always try to avoid each other like the pest. Mm-hmm to learn from each other. So we've instituted a a learning and sharing experience, Mm. which has helped significantly uh, in in developing talent in the Netherlands. And we're we're striving to, for eighth position in the Olympic. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think the last Olympic, we were nine uh, in the world with with our size. Mm. uh, It's incredible. But, You know, you mentioned that uh, you are uh, giving a lot of support to sports persons. What is your process of spotting talent at a young age? I I think the young age is a very important uh, uh, consideration, Uh, not only for sports, but Mm -hmm. I strongly believe that we should cherish talents of people between four and 12, Mm -hmm. because that is the determining period for their future evolution. Mm -hmm. In sports, I've I found out the hard way that if you haven't started a sport before age 12, the chances of ultimately being successful is are very marginal. Wow. I, for instance, uh, when I uh, prior to the Atlantic Olympic Games, I took the press, the media to mm-hmm. uh, uh, Atlanta in the USA. Mm-hmm. And on the flight back, I realized that it would benefit the prestige of the Olympic Committee if I, as chairman, became national champion in something. Mm -hmm. I've been playing top league field hockey and tennis, Mm -hmm. but at that time, the only thing which I'd started at age 45 was squash. Mm -hmm. To make the story short, I became national squash master. Wow, at 45? At 45. No, no, at age at age fifty five, mm-hmm. even at that time. But that was for people over fifty. So, mm-hmm. and uh, so with that experience, I tried to become uh, to do the same in badminton. Mm-hmm. 
and I was wiped off the court. Mm. And the reason was very simple. In squash, there was nobody in the Netherlands, or virtually nobody, that had started underage trial. <laughs> okay. In badminton, there were only people that started underage mm. trial. Mm. So there's the message. If you want to develop a talent, you've got to start very early. Very, yeah. very interesting. What a great message. And I hope uh, a lot of sports management people are listening to this amazing message coming from you, Mickey. Yeah, so now let's also, move. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Please go ahead. No, it's also relevant for school in general. Mm. I'm, I'm supporting devel development schools here in the Netherlands that really focus on developing individual talents by mm. people. And the internet allows us to do that mm. far more than in the past. So we mm. have to move away from the large classes with 24 to 30 kids mm. to a much more individualized, individualized uh, development of people where they take control of their own development. And kids love to do that. So it's Amazing. very important. Amazing. So my next question to you uh, is uh, about uh, the organization, the public cause. Yeah, you're the chairman. Tell me yeah. about what you do here. Okay, I started. I, I as uh, like you, I, I feel an obligation to pass on my experience and to contribute to society. Given very fortunate position and privileged position I've been in. I mean, all Dutchmen are privileged, but I'm amongst the most privileged. Mm -hmm. So, sort of good luck has come my way. So, I feel a strong responsibility for passing on the experience and and i have an independent voice mm -hmm. and that's badly needed as i already implied in the beginning mm -hmm. i i believe strongly that we need what we call constructive rebels mm -hmm. so we have an annual award of constructive rebels that are people that are in one way rebellious uh, deviating from the uh, trodden path mm -hmm. But do that from a from a constructive perspective, constructive mm. from the perspective of society. Mm. So the public cause we we uh, created uh, first by brainstorming of hundred uh, prominent Dutchmen from all classes of society mm -hmm. about the future of our country. Right. And and then uh, I established I created the institution, which is basically two fields of operation. I the one I call software. Mm -hmm. That is the way we interact as citizens amongst mm -hmm. ourselves, right. how we treat each other, how we have empathy, responsibility, mm -hmm. share, etc. And the other is hardware. That is the way we are organized as a country, okay. institutions, laws, practices, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I produced three groups on the topic. I can show them uh, mm -hmm. like that. Okay. Okay. The red, white, and blue together they represent the Dutch flag. Right. Yes. And and the first two are basically about the software. Mm -hmm. It's about cooperation and dealing with each other and about values. Mm -hmm. And the last one is called more well, and that's about structure. We're right in the middle of debating that and introducing that because, like in many countries, there's a debate going on. How do we find a new style of management mm -hmm. of our society? Mm -hmm. Because I, I believe very strongly in democracy, but the way we give form and shape to democracy has mm -hmm. been deteriorating and we're somewhat out of control and we got to redesign ourselves. Okay. So that's what the public cause tried to do. It's a platform. Uh, anybody can stand on the platform. We encourage everybody to just 
from the basic points of values for society, which are very fundamental, to develop new ways of thinking. And just one illustration, there, there's, we, I've now developed 12 building blocks for a new mm -hmm. society. But the first block is very simple, human scale. Mm -hmm. we, most of our government actions, are, as I suggested before, built on concepts of the Industrial Revolution, top right. down. Mm. And so at the top, we think of the answer. It's got to be very detailed. Mm. And, uh, and then we actually seek robots to execute it. Mm. Well, my belief is that we should apply much more individual treatment, freedom at the mm. front line in the interaction and mm. share responsibilities with our citizens. Mm. And that's a long, long, it'll take at least 30 years to make that transition. But it's a very important one, basically for most countries. Very interesting. It's the same challenge. Very interesting. So, Mihi, I'm now to coming toward the end of our conversation. I have time for one more question, and I'd like to come to your book. And I know you've got other books also, but today we'll focus only on your book, Management Made Simple. Yeah. Tell me about the hypothesis for your book and what made you write it. Okay. My belief is that uh, the world is getting increasingly complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that is, uh, and I've learned a lot from Chaos Mathematics in the book from Jim Glick, which I recommend to everybody, Chaos, mm -hmm. which is that at a certain rate of change, the outcome in the future is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, we have to be very, very flexible and we have to address the complexity by simplicity mm -hmm. because only through simplicity you have control. Now, I have a very large uh, library of business books, mm -hmm. like whatever, 800 or something. Mm -hmm. uh, if I simplify, then I could say the first three pages, you see the ID mm. and the other 297 pages are waste because right. the elaboration on the idea well they're wasting my time. Mm -hmm. So there are very few business books that I've finished. Mm -hmm. What my book does is it offers from the, from the base of my personal experience in consulting over 30 years, it offers something like, I don't know, 36 ideas mm -hmm. in who are described in one page, illustrated in another page, and a mm -hmm. cartoon mm -hmm. uh, and a summary to go with it. And... It helps, in my view, it's very valuable to people at all level of organizations in mm -hmm. all types of organizations mm -hmm. because it goes about very basic things of dealing with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of the lessons that I've learned uh, the hard way is that we all know that to get action, you have to have a message. Correct. But much more important is see to have contact. Mm -hmm. And I find increasingly we find that it's very difficult to establish contact with mm. an audience mm. of a certain kind mm. because that's fragmenting all the time. So mm. a real challenge also in the public cause is not necessarily a message, but our ability to establish contact with mm. relatively large groups. Now, there, there are many of those kinds mm -hmm. of ideas. And, uh, and I think... Uh, there's a need for simplicity, but you, when you simplify things, you got to know what you do. And that is my scientific background, the theoretical mechanics. And I learned that the 17 different classes I'd had in the first year all were governed 
Mm -hmm. I'm saying nine partial differential equations, mm -hmm. but they were simplifications of, mm -hmm. and, and that's, the world is unbelievably complex. Our ability as managers to deal with them is to reduce it to simplicity, mm -hmm. which is good enough to help you. And that is what I try to do in this book and what I try to spread the world. Wonderful. Mickey, on that note, uh, thank you so much. It has been such a privilege speaking to you. Thank you for talking to me about your absolutely incredible journey. Thank you for talking to me about, you know, all your, your perspectives on businesses, on digital businesses, about the Olympic committee that you have uh, led, about how you have developed sports people, and finally, about the public cause and your book. Thank you again and good luck. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You videocast and podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.